Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. My name is Thomas and my guest today is James Connolly. He is a Emiratus Professor at the Faculty of Business, Law and Politics at the University of Hull in the UK. He is the Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Social Economics, published by Emerald. So hello, thank you very, very much for joining me. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. So today we are talking about inflation, something that we've seen in the news a great deal recently. Indeed. I mean, it's a fascinating topic, uh, partly because it affects everyone. But as we'll see in a moment, it affects different people differently, which is also part of its fascination. Absolutely. So I thought, first of all, start with a definition. So what is inflation? Well, as a broad term, you might say it's the rate at which prices are rising over a given time. And it's not just about a one-off price rise. That happens. It's about uh, a relatively consistent rising in the general level of prices over a period of, say, months or years. So you can have years of inflation, but you wouldn't talk about days of inflation (laughs) because you don't know where it's going to go next week. But if you have a consistent upward trend in prices over an extended period of time, you'd call that inflation. Okay, thank you. And why do prices go up? Well, there's a number of reasons why prices go up. I mean, some of them are straightforward, what you might call shock reasons. The war in Ukraine is a good example of this. Uh, It's not just the cost of war itself, although wars are expensive. If you look at the Second World War, uh, you'll notice that they had 25% inflation in, I think, 1941. And that must have been the shock of war. But the external shock of war, by which I mean a war we're not involved in, or directly, is to do with, for example, grain prices in the Ukraine, mm. or the uh, supply of oil or other forms of energy. It could be, you know, it could be electricity, it could be coal, it could be oil, it could be anything where the supply is constrained by the facts of, in this case, war. So one reason for inflation is what we call cost push. In other words, it's the increased supply, the increased price of uh, raw materials. Or, or whatever materials or or related things such as energy, which are now, why should that be so important? For example, to a farmer, well, because you're paying more to get around your own farm. You're paying mm. more to get your products to the market. You're paying more for everything, including the inputs to your farm, if any of those are coming from elsewhere, because again, the cost of transport are going to be uh, a higher uh, proportion of your overall expenditure. And again, imagine you're a, a farmer in uh, the Netherlands, you know, huge greenhouses, all very energy intensive. But most of our tomatoes probably come from those greenhouses. But we're going to pay higher prices for tomatoes because of energy prices increasing in the Netherlands. So those are just some examples of that dimension of inflation. But as they say, it doesn't stop there. There's more. So <laughs> what there is as well is, of course, sometimes it's the other way around. It's not so much that the price of commodities has risen. It's that we're demanding more things. 
we have more sort of consumer demand than there are consumables to demand, if I could put it mm. that way. You know, with, now, of course, what happens then, of course, if prices rise, because if you can't increase the production of a good, then what happens is the price rises, and eventually that will then stabilise at a higher price. Um, so one reason why we have that sort of thing is, that, for example, in a buoyant economy, if people's wages are, are rising, then you might find that while you have a lag in production, in that intervening period, prices are going to rise. But you hope that the fact that prices have risen will then lead to um, enhanced production of that good, in which case price will stabilise and possibly even fall, depending on the levels of demand. Um, the more worrying thing from the point of view of some economists is, of course, not just you know high demand in an economy. It's what you might call um, money-led high demand in an economy. That is, you know, the old notion of printing money. Too much, too many pounds chasing too many goods, uh, too few goods, I should say. Um, that sort of thing. So this is why people are always wary of increasing the supply of money in an economy. But I should point out that that is not an invariable problem. And, and it depends on a number of things. So one has to be careful with all of these explanations of inflation, I think, because almost invariably it's what we might call a multi-factored series of causations. Thank you very much. And you mentioned some of those shocks which can affect the economy in the short term. But over the long term, over decades, what is the driver for inflation, say, between now and the 70s and going back further? Yes, you raise a good question there because... This is about comparing things over time. Uh, sudden shocks in the price of this or that good is one thing. But as with talking about this in the context of social economics, we should be aware, or be aware, I should say, of all of the social factors that are important here. And by that, I mean things to do with the workforce. I mean things to do with government policy. I mean things to do with how work is organised. I mean things to do with trade unions and so on, to do with relative worker power as opposed to uh, the power of the bosses, if you want to put it that way. So, for example, when we talk about inflation, sometimes people start talking about the spiral effect where, for example, workers might be petitioning for higher wages because the retail price index or whatever measure of inflation we're using is going up. But then the problem is, it's often said, if they are chasing after that, the very fact that they get higher wages increases input costs, which then puts the RPI up, which then means that they're chasing after the next highest level. So you get into an inflationary spiral. And when you're talking about the inflation of the mid-1970s, I'm talking here about the United Kingdom, um, that is more or less what happened. But it doesn't follow that the trade unions caused the initial inflation, but they might have contributed to the spiralling effect of it once it had happened. And this is why the so-called social contract was so important, because that was a voluntary limitation on uh, demand for wage increases. So that that's an important point. But the second important point is that we're talking about the unions. Unions were strong. They had vast collective bargaining power. They were centred on 
large, the powerful ones were centered on large-scale industries, mining and various forms of engineering and railways and you know, transport unions and whatever it might be. So, so they could organize, and they could organize in the workplace in large numbers, which meant they had considerable bargaining power. They could speak, as it were, face-to-face and one-to-one with government. But none of that is true now. So right now, it's relatively unusual, and I think Mick Lynch of the railway workers is the exception. It's relatively unusual for people to know the names of the main union leaders and for the main union leaders to have a, for a, to have any considerable power by comparison with the days of, say, Arthur Scargill or Hugh Scanlon or Jack Jones or whoever uh, 30 or 40 years ago. So that is a huge difference because it's unlikely right now that we're going to have that inflationary spiral in the way that you might have had it in the past. Um, But this also means, of course, that uh, working people might be more adversely affected by inflation precisely because they don't have the strong unions to press their case for them. But it's telling right now to observe, of course, that a lot of people, including the nurses, are talking about strike action. So maybe, you know, these things don't stay the same and it may move around again. Absolutely. So uh, you are, of course, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Social Economics. Um, so that social effect of inflation is is vital to what we're talking about. What do you see as the modern kind of social effect of inflation in the UK? Well, if we're talking about the UK, I mean, I think there's a number of things that one could raise. I mean, first of all, people are used to a general inflationary tendency in the economy. Mm. Um, and you can see this by how they speak and how they act. Um, so I think the idea that prices rise is something that people are used to. But, of course, economists would generally say that a modest level of inflation is something which is a, a, a measure of a healthy economy, in effect. Mm. Uh, and a modest, modest house prices, for example, over time is good, you know, because you see your asset increasing in its value and all the rest of it. And so there's a sense of security, there's a sense of well-being and all of these sorts of things. And as long as wages are keeping up to scratch with prices in general terms, then people are maybe slightly and slightly exceeding them. So if you have inflation of 2% and wage rises of 3%, everyone is a little bit better off. Then you have a society marked by well-being, for example. But what I'm seeing right now is a society marked by anxiety, a society marked by fear and trepidation, but also a society marked by a sense of discounting the future and focusing on the present. And you can see this mirrored in the things that politicians say too. So suddenly, right now, people are talking about economic growth and all the rest of it, and people are talking less exactly at the time when they should be talking more about pressing environmental concerns. Because when energy prices are your problem, the idea of um, alternative sources, as distinct from what people see as a quick fix by fracking or something, you think, oh, forget that, let's do something now. Now, my point is not that it's possible to do that, but that's how people think that you should be acting. And so the answer to your question is, yes, I think it it creates a febrile society. 
a society marked by anxiety. Um, and if, if I may, if I can compare with other countries, I mean, at the far end of the scale, you'd have sort of Venezuelan hyperinflation, where apparently people make handbags out of worthless banknotes. Mm. You know, I mean, we, we haven't got that bad. Turkey, on the other hand, is an interesting mid-case because it's not hyperinflation, but there's been consistent and high inflation over the last decade or so. And what you're seeing there is a, a widening increase in, you know, in you have problems of poverty, you have problems of inequality, you have all of those sort of things established there, but also you have a huge increase in borrowing in order to purchase now. At some point, that particular set of chickens has to come home to roost. But of course, in inflationary times, if you know you you are discounting the future by purchasing now because you don't want to buy in the future. So you know it depends, of course, what happens to wage levels and things. But essentially, if you think the wage levels will rise, then it makes sense to buy now, even on credit, even at high interest rates. So, and that makes a difference to society in that sort of case. Often with inflation, we just get a single number, right? Inflation is at 8%. Do you think it's helpful the way we measure it now, given that it, you know, well, I could even ask, how do we measure it now? There's, there's more than one method. Well, <laughs> that's, a, that, that, that's a fascinating question, really. I mean, the short answer to your question um, <clears throat> is that there isn't a single measure of inflation for a very simple reason. Every single good in the market has its own inflation rate. And in the case of some things, uh, personal computers, declining prices for higher power over Mm. decades, you know. But of course, that's not the only thing in the basket. And if the other things in your basket are staple items, bread would be a standard case or something, uh, which is increasing in price because of wheat price shocks from the Ukraine war, for example, then you've got an interesting question, which runs like this. What do you put in your basket? In what proportions do you put it in the basket so that you can measure accurately what a composite inflation rate looks like? But the key point is that you can come up with one figure, but it's not the same figure for the rich as it is for the poor. Because the price of bread features much more heavily, has much greater weight in the everyday expenditures of the poor than of the rich. In other words, the poor use more of their disposable income on staple items such as food. And when the price of food goes up, they can't avoid buying it which means you know, they don't care about the price of bloody laptops and they don't care about whether Lamborghinis or Porsches have gone down in price. That makes no difference. What matters is whether the price of bread has gone up in price. And so inflation typically adversely affects the poor more than it does anyone else. That tends to give rise to greater inequalities in society. Because if you're spending all your money, you're certainly not saving it, for example. Um, But in addition to that, just going back to the general point, it's a very difficult question. How do you come up with this composite measure? So, for example, the retail price index includes housing costs. The um, consumer price index doesn't. 
But there is a version of that called the Consumer Price Index H, which does, but in a slightly different measure to the Retail Price Index. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this. What I'm saying here is that the choices are very largely political. Mm. Money and inflation, they're not neutral. You know, we have political choices here. We have ethical choices here. And let me tell you what I mean. So, for example, um, the government, when it's uh, putting up um, the price of railway tickets, does it by basing it on the retail price index plus. Because the retail price index gives you a higher number than the consumer price index. So when they are going to do other things, they go for the lower one if it suits them. In other words, if they're spending, if governments are spending, they tend to go for the one which gives you the lower inflation rate. But when it's the opposite, when they're getting money in, they go for the higher one as their measure. Now, that's what I mean by saying it's political, or one example of what I mean by saying it's political. So it's a very difficult thing because not only is the inflation rate different for the rich and the poor, it's different for people at different ages. Mm. My personal inflation rate now, as someone who's paid off a mortgage recently, is you know changed by the fact that I no longer worry about housing costs. The inflation rate for my son or daughter, on the other hand, who have mortgages or are paying rent, those are directly affected by anything that's changing in the housing market. And that, of course, like the price of bread, is something you need a place to live. So you can't easily escape the cost of housing. So whether or not your um, inflation rate is based on a measure which includes a cost of housing or not will directly affect you. Because it will either not be measuring or be measuring the thing which is of vital importance to you. So it's different by ages. It's different by class. I would guess from what you're saying, it's quite different by region of the UK as well, particularly London and the North. Yes, I, I think, I mean, we only have to talk about housing in London and the South East to see that instantly. But also it can vary. I mean, I believe that you said you were located in West Yorkshire. That's right, yes. Now, South Yorkshire um, have a policy of um, subsidising uh, local transport costs, railways and things. I don't know about West Yorkshire, but they, they subsidise more than East Yorkshire does. Mm. East Yorkshire being more sparsely populated, more of a rural a area and more conservative in the political sense, of, well, both senses of the term. So mile for mile, it costs twice as much to travel on the trains in East Yorkshire than it does in, say, around Sheffield. Wow, okay. So, so if I'm travelling by train every day, and I'm in one part of the country, I may be paying twice as much as you are in another part of the country. Again, if you're a 60-year-old in London or Wales, you get a free bus pass. Mm. If you're a 60-year-old in Yorkshire, you don't. Yes. You get it when you're 65 or 66. You get it when you retire, whatever that age is. So, again, that shows it's age and region and age and region together. Even just within Yorkshire. <laughs> even just And even just within Yorkshire. Yes. Yeah. So these things. So the idea of a simple inflation rate measured by a single number is it's useful. Hmm. It's useful in the way that national uniform swing is useful in measuring election results. You know, in practice, what happens is you can't assume it at the local level. That's a really interesting comparison. A lot of the newspapers have been talking about inflation today 
versus inflation in the 70s. We touched on that briefly about the difference with the unions. Would you say there are any other major differences or similarities between now and back then? I think the main difference, I'll go back to the unions for a moment. And I'm also going to bring Turkey in as another comparison here. Um, I think with the unions, the key thing is now that people, the scapegoat is different. That's one important thing. In the mid-1970s, the scapegoat was clearly, for many people, the unions. Mm. But no one does this now because they don't really see that it's the unions causing the problem. And I suspect, by the way, this is some of it is suspicion rather than social science, you know, but the government is getting a lot of flack right now. But that's because the government is being assumed to be the leading agent in these matters that they assume to have the responsibility for these matters they can't shift the responsibility in the 1970s what happened ultimately when mrs thatcher came to power is that the unions were quote unquote tamed and all the rest of it and so that 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 inflationary pressure as it was seen from the unions declined as the unions declined in power in authority and in numbers and in their workplace location. Whereas now we're relatively ununionized by comparison. Uh, and there's a lot more casual labor as well now. There's a lot more Amazon type working, there's mm. a lot more zero contracts type working. And by the way, this also is another key difference. That is, if you, um, you know, a lot of people right now have several jobs. Yeah. And a lot of people right now who are on benefits have jobs too, quite lawfully and legally. Um, the problem is that the jobs aren't paying as much as they previously did. So when we're measuring, see, we need to think about inflation in relation to employment. So in the, 19, in the 1960s and 1970s, it was regarded that there was a, a trade-off, as it were, between inflation and, and employment. Um, we don't think of it in quite the same way now. Because one of the questions we're beginning to ask is, what is the quality of the employment on offer? So you can have full employment, as apparently we do, and still have labour shortages, as apparently Mm. we do. And that's a very curious thing. Um, But one of the interesting things underlying that is precisely that some people have withdrawn from the labour market. And a lot of other people are in the labour market, but they're working a lot of different shifts, different part-time jobs. They're working with a portfolio of things. This tends to apply more at the at the um, the poorer end of the employment opportunities, rather than you know you're just trying to get another cleaning job, as it were, to to make things good. But of course, mm-hmm. one of the big pressures right now will therefore be that people will be out there looking for all of these opportunities. Um, whereas in the past, the main thrust of inflationary concern came through big unions. I'm talking about perception here, but big unions, uh, collective bargaining for all their members. That was it. The other related point here, of course, is that the National Union of Mine Workers it was presumed that their members were men. Mm. <laughs> what happened when the mines closed? Well, the men were out of work, and suddenly you realise that the workforce composition has changed enormously. So the composition of the workforce now is very different to how it was then as well. It's not only where they are and what they're doing, it's who is doing it. 
Mm. Also, what they can do given their other constraints and circumstances. So, in a way, things are really very different from the 1970s. As some people have said recently, we have every type of inflation right now except wage inflation. Would you say that's fair? Uh, pretty much, as long as you exclude all the people that the current prime minister seems to want to reward. There are plenty of, I mean, if you look at the, for example, the differential between those on the highest earnings in a company and those on the lowest earnings, you know, it used to be tenfold or fivefold and now it's a hundredfold or, or whatever mm. the figure is. It's enormous. Yeah. Enormous differentials here. So some people in these circumstances right now, they've got wage inflation. Or some people in the short term might have what Keynes called profit inflation. Now, if you're getting higher prices for a good but haven't yet raised the wages of your workers, you can pocket the difference, at least in the short term, mm. of profit inflation. But, of course, there's only one set of people who can benefit from those sort of things, uh, and it's not going to be the workers. No. So, uh, so some people, yes, have wage um, inflation, but precious few, and your average person isn't among them. I have kind of one more question really about the comparison between now and the past, which is I have been told that there's a very different expectation of standard of living between now and in the past. For example, we have iPhones. Yeah. Would you say that's a major factor in our understanding of inflation? I think it probably is in certain ways because, and let's say, right, okay, the bog standard answer to start off with is, you know, here I am holding up iPhone. You can't mm. see it. It's a podcast, but there it is. Now, I didn't used to have an iPhone 20 years ago. I have one now. Should that be counted in the re- in the RPI? Mm. You know, price of iPhones, is that something in the shopping basket? Now, someone might say, no, it's not a necessity. So why would you have it anywhere near it, near the shopping basket, which you use to calculate the inflation rate? But the obvious answer to that is an answer given by Karl Marx, of course. You know, today's luxury becomes tomorrow's necessity. Mm. Now, that doesn't apply to absolutely everything, but it certainly applies to means of communication, for example. And it also, you know, TVs, radios, iPhones, whatever. It certainly applies to a lot of domestic appliances. Fifty years ago, not everyone had a toaster, but now we don't think twice about someone having a toaster. And if the price of toasters was in the retail price index, you wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, you know, it's not a big deal. Is it? You know, you wouldn't think about it. But fifty years ago, you'd think, oh, toasters, luxury. You know, that's not the case now. So I think it's generally, generally speaking, once a population rely on a widespread form of technology the fact mm. that it might have been seen to be luxurious 20 years ago when only the uh, early adopters had them it's immaterial because now as we all know the use of a phone you still get a few old codgers say i just want a phone that does phoning but mm. actually most of us use a phone for all sorts of things and that includes the less well-off in society as well and there are a lot of things you can't do without having a phone or can only do with very great difficulty if you don't have a phone. So it becomes more and more of a necessity. Hence, it moves out of the luxury class, even though by comparison with the past, you might say it's a luxury good. Yeah. So the answer to the question, that is these things now, you can't classify them simply as luxuries. They have to be classified as necessities. But it's probably a spectrum. But they're certainly at that end of the spectrum. They're not at the other end of the spectrum. It is the problem of comparability over time, right? Yeah, but 
I think sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, when I were a lad, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they say, we didn't have this, we didn't have that. And we were all okay. Well, yeah, I'm sure you were. I need the proof. But that's a wrong way of comparing past and present because, of course, it's a feature of the Industrial Revolution as much as anything. Put very roughly, I think you could honestly say that, you know, between 1066 and 1700, a lot of things didn't change very much at all for the average person over 50 or 100 years. They didn't move out of their parish. They were working on the land or they might have a small holding or whatever they had. But there was not a lot of change in their circumstances, not a lot of change in their disposable income. There was not a lot of change in the the goods they had. They probably didn't possess many goods. Um, Since about 1750, all of that has changed. So the idea that we get used to having more goods of various times over time is built into our expectation of um, our own well-being. So the idea, and this goes back to the point I made early on about mild inflation as a sign of growth in the economy, a growing economy enables everyone, including the worse off, to have more. Mm. If, oh, by the way, if and only if it's structured in such a way as to enable, enable that to happen, trickle-down effect is not an automatic thing. It has to be made to happen. But that expectation that next year we'll be a bit better off than we are this year, and then that, that is measured by things, now by iPhones, but in the past by TVs or radios or milk on the doorstep or whatever it is you know that it was essentially a good sign and a good measure of um people's expectations and their sense of well-being about the world and whether they were looking forward in time to the future or whether they were um uncertain about the future because of course uncertainty about the future then changes their behavior in the present Mm. so if you're certain about the future, you're more likely to lay longer-term plans. You're likely to you know, buy things and invest in things and all these other things, which in turn contribute to an economy that is healthy and vibrant. But if you are fearful of the future, what do you do? Well, it could be all sorts of things that you do. You might start hoarding your money under the mattress. It doesn't really matter what it is you're doing, but very often what you do is deleterious to the economy. So the very fact that people are afraid of economic performance leads to bad economic performance. So you have that sort of self-fulfilling prophecy effect going on. Perhaps as one final question, what positives do you see for the year ahead? Well, it's an interesting point, because if you take it, the most of the inflation in the UK, this is, is caused by cost push um, factors. So price of energy and various raw materials and the transport of raw materials and all the rest of it, then some of it depends on what happens in the Ukraine. So it depends on wheat harvests. Now, the problem with that is we don't know what's going to happen in the Ukraine. Mm. And plenty of people are saying that inflation now is 13% and it's likely to rise to 18% over the coming year. And that would be getting back to the sort of figures that we haven't seen since the 1970s, if that's going to be sustained. Now, I think it's less likely that it will be sustained at that higher rate in the UK. So I think if I were prognosticating, which you've asked me to do, then I would say, look, 
on the assumption that Ukraine can get back its uh, back to some sort of normality, and that the wheat yields in other parts of the world um, are not adversely affected by anything. I'm thinking of America and Canada and so on here. Then I can see that the price of certain things might be coming down very quickly. So I can see some alleviation on the price of some raw materials, but not on energy. I think energy is going to be troublesome for quite a long time yet. How that plays out, I don't know. Speaking for myself with my environmentalist hat on, I welcome the wind power, solar power and all the rest of it. But in the UK, of course, if the government follows its current trajectory, which is by no means a given, by the way, if it follows its current trajectory, then it will be reducing the growth in solar power and wind power and so on, rather than increasing it. At the time, you might say that we should be increasing it simply because we need all the power we can get. And this is a bloody good way of getting it. And thank you very much, sir. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. And of course, our listeners can find, well, they can find where to find you in the show notes. And of course, they can find you in the International Journal of Social Economics. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about our guest and for a transcript of today's episode, please see our show notes on our website. I would like to thank Claire Lehane and Daniel Ridge for their help with today's episode and Alex Jungius from This Is Distorted. <laughs>